In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah, a study of comfort, where we get that title, at least the last part of it, the study of comfort is Nehemiah's name means God comforts. And we find great comfort in that book. And one of the questions that we'll be asked at the very beginning is, why is Jerusalem so important? The last three weeks we've been looking at Jerusalem and the history of Israel, and today is no different. We're going to look at it in the life of David. We're going to see great parallels between David's life and Jesus, and also between David and Jesus and those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look together at a great passage, 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It's a great passage. It's a passage that many uh, scholars have uh, deliberated long over. Uh, it's funny to read some of the comments. I'll make some comments about their comments later. But uh, let's begin in verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who had said to David, you are, will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David could not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and blind who were hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David built the city all around the Milo, which is the citadel inward. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of of his people, Israel. The jet was sitting at the, on the tarmac right next to the loading gate. Finally, the last passenger, straggler, gets on and takes his seat. And suddenly there's an announcement. This is your captain speaking. A warning light is on. The thermal expander valve on engine two, I'm not flying until they replace it. It could take hours. I'm asking you to deplane and go back to the terminal. And everyone dutifully did. There weren't even groans. 
I mean, nobody wanted to be on a plane that had engine problems, and so they all went back to the terminal, and they were stunned. And when 10 minutes later, an announcement came on, please proceed down the ramp to the, to the gate and onto the plane. Only 10 minutes. When they all got back on the plane, one passenger said to a, one of the, the uh, flight attendants, how were they able to get that valve so quickly? She said, they didn't get any valve. That's a thousand miles away. The guy said, then why are we back on the plane? He said, because we got a new pilot. <laughs> 20 years ago, a Chinese student came to Pittsburgh for the first time, spent three years here, and came to know Christ. When he got back home, he was interrogated, and the questioner said, one question, just ask him one question, how is it that you have come to become a Christian? The man said, it's easy. One day a man was walking along and fell into a deep, dark pit. He tried for three days to get out, he couldn't get out. Then Confucius came by and said to him, what are you doing in that pit? If you had followed my instructions, you wouldn't be there. And he walked away. Next, Buddha came by and said, oh, my poor soul, if you come up here, I will care for you, and you will be able to walk in my way. And Buddha waited for an hour, and the man couldn't get out of the pit. So Buddha walked away. And then Jesus Christ came by. He saw the man in the pit, and he jumped down into the pit. He took hold of him and brought him all the way up. The Chinese scholar smiled and said, That is why Jesus is my master. Luther once said that everybody in their heart is Pelagian. You know what that means? You and I, by nature, think better of ourselves than we should. Luther said, at our worst, we think in our own minds we're neutral. Generally, we think of ourselves as good. Like that airlines that replace the pilot instead of the valve, we think there are some problems in our lives, but we can handle them. And you know what the Lord says to that? You're wrong. And the Bible won't let you get away with it. The Bible is filled with stories of people who are flawed and are weak and are loaded with inability. And nowhere do we see that any clearer than this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now you've got to get the scene. Saul is dead. David has become king. He's been coronated seven and a half years as king of Judah. But the 11 other tribes that live in the north want nothing to do with David, which is really weird because David's songs, his psalms, are being sung all over Palestine. And the songs say a number of things. Praise be the Lord and wonderful is David his servant. And yet these 11 tribes want nothing to do with David. David. David's a little like Jesus. He came to his own and the own, his own knew him not. In fact, they did everything they could to tear down David from his throne. 
And yet, when you get to chapter 5, it all changes. The Bible says that all of these 11 tribes come to David at Hebron, where he is sitting enthroned, and they say to him, you are now our king. Those who once hated him now love him. Those who once cursed him now embrace him. You know, when Alexander the Great was conquering the world, he got news that one of his soldiers in his army deserted. And everyone in that army knew the penalty for desertion. It was death. And that's why everyone was surprised when Alexander the Great didn't order a death decree. He said, I want to see that man. Within hours, the man was standing before the emperor. Alexander looked him in the eye and said, what's your name? Trembling, the young man said, Alexander, sir. The emperor looked at him again and said, what's your name? It's Alexander, sir. Alexander stared at him and said, what is your name? By this time, apoplectic. The young man said, Sir, my name is Alexander. The emperor stared at him for two solid minutes and then said to him, Then change your name or change your conduct because no one named Alexander could do what you've done. And he let him go. That's exactly what David does. 300,000 men come to Hebron who've been David's enemy, who've cursed him, who want nothing to do with him, and David welcomes them with open arms. Instead of giving him justice, he gives him grace. David gives him grace in four distinct ways. They are the same ways that anyone that Jesus pulls from a pit, like you and me, anyone in whom Jesus is alive and well, the same four ways grace is distributed will be seen in your life and mine. So let's dig in. First of all, notice David engages them. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. In other words, it was you who fought for us. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. You know, the word used there is nagid in Hebrew. It can be translated ruler, it can be translated governor, it can be translated captain, but the best translation is here in the ESV, you are prince. The Lord has called you shepherd and prince over Israel. Now think of what that means. What they're saying is, we recognize that God is your king and you are his prince. When we've fought against you, we've been fighting against the prince of Almighty God. Now, there's a big difference between, between being a king and a prince. 
Somebody has said everyone that really knows God knows that God rules him. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not a consulting firm that gives out advice to clients. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God Almighty, God of the universe, who transforms paupers into princes. That's what he did for David. David knows it. David knows that though they call him king, he knows himself to be a prince. He is the servant of the Lord. And over the next few verses, we see what this prince does, which is to impart grace. Second, notice he not only embraces them, he also elevates them. Look at verse 5. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven and a half years or seven and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah for 33 years. Now notice what David does immediately after they crown him king. You know what he does? He takes his fighting men and he leaves Hebron and goes on a 28-mile journey north to a place called, and for every Pittsburgher, it's easy to know the name of this Jebusite town. There was a man who ran as a running back for the Steelers named DeBus. <laughs> Jerome Bettis, DeBus. This place is called Jebus. And the Jebusites have this place, Jebus, and the reason they have it is because they recognize the importance of the geography. It's located on five hilltops on the northern and western sides of this embankment, this city. There are rock outcroppings that are easy to defend because it's very difficult to scale those walls. Somebody has said, this town, Jabas, which will become Jerusalem, has been prime real estate for 5,000 years. Jerusalem was attacked, has been attacked 52 times. It has been captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been destroyed twice. And the reason people want that place is because of its geography, but David wants something more. You see, he knows the history of this place. He knows that before the Jebusites, the name of this place was Jerusalem. Yeru, meaning city, and Salem, or Salim, meaning God. It was the city of God. David knows that this is the exact place where Melchizedek lived. And when Abram comes back from beating those five kings, that coalition of kings, we looked at that several weeks ago, he comes to this place, Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine and a blessing. And then Abram does something that people only did to God, and that is he pays them tithes. What Abram understands is this is the dwelling place of God. And David knows it. Listen again to the words of Psalm 76. In Judah God is known, His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place is in Zion. You know, there's 70 different names throughout history for this place. What David knows is all the way back to Abram, 
Jerusalem was known as the dwelling place of God. And though the Jebusites now call it their capital, he knows that before they got there, the king of heaven and earth dwelled there. Somebody has said, never before in the history of the church have there been so many Christians that have been so obsessed with themselves. Never have there been so many who've entertained such lofty notions of their own abilities and such puny views of God. When Teddy Roosevelt was president, there were many who speculated what it would be like for him the first day he's in heaven. So the story began to go around that when he gets to heaven, he sees St. Peter at the gate, and he says to Peter, you know, your choir is weak. It is desperately weak. It needs to be reorganized at once. And Peter says to him, okay, you do it. So he says to Peter, I need 10,000 sopranos. Peter says, you got them. I need 10,000 tenors. You've got them. I need 10,000 altos. You've got them. Then Peter said, how about the basses? And Teddy Roosevelt said, I'll sing bass. (laughs) That happens in the church all the time. Never forget, years ago, I talked to a woman who was in ministry, and she worked for a guy. She told me this. She said to him one day, you know, this person... I think loves Jesus more than anybody I know. He said, what about me? I said, what did you say to him? She said, I couldn't say anything. I was speechless. Imagine saying to someone, you know, that person over there, I believe that person knows Jesus and loves Jesus more than anybody I know. And then having the response be, what about me? J.R. Packer said that our view of God is like old-fashioned scales. When we go up in our own estimation of ourselves, God goes down. And when God rises in our eyes and our estimation, we go down. At a time when David should be up in his own estimation, he's down. He leaves his throne, he leaves Hebron, he goes on a military battle. Why? Because he wants to elevate God in the people's eyes. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his king. And he wants that king to be raised high in the eyes of all. Third, notice he eliminates evil. Look at verse 6. And David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and said to David, they said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Then look at verse 8. David says, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Now, a lot of modern scholars puzzle over this expression, the blind and the lame. And they say, what in the world does that mean? It's used three times in three verses. The blame and the blind, the blind and the lame. What is this? And it is funny to read what almost everybody says. They say this, the Jebusites were jeering David. They were accosting him with insult, and they were saying, you know something, you may think you're hot stuff, but we can tell you blind and lame can defeat you. You're not getting in here. What most commentators say is they're just being sarcastic, but that's not it at all. Twenty years ago, 
I happened to read a commentary written by a rabbi from the Middle Ages. And he made it clear. He made clear all of these words. He was able to make it all come together for me. And the amazing thing is, 10 years ago, there's a British archaeological team that authenticated everything that this man had said. Now, the rabbi looked at the issues. You know, you've got the Jebusites, you've got a water supply, and you've got David's antipathy, hatred for this term, blind and lame. And the rabbi was able to put it all together. You know what he said? He said that on the northern and the western walls of Jebus, there were these large, actually giant, stone and wood idols that the Jebusites had erected. And any advancing army would see these idols as they came toward the elevated city. And what they had done is, with some ingenious technology, even back then, they were able to connect the water system of the city to these giant idols. And when an enemy began to move in their direction... Through a variety of levers, they were able to redirect water into these idols, causing them to belch and to lurch forward, and it would scare the enemies of the Jebusites. You know what they called them? They called them the blind and the lame. Not only were these idols the defenders of the city, these were idols they worshipped. They called them the blind and the lame. You know why? Because in the Jewish history of Israel, there were three patriarchs that were the greatest. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac became blind. Jacob became lame. And what they were saying was, we're going to call our idols the blind and the lame. We're going to parody. We're going to disabuse you of any notion that your patriarchs were significant at all. We are going to make them the demonic representation of evil. And that's why the Bible says David hated them in his soul. What David was saying is, those idols and you people aren't simply attacking me and all of your enemies. You're attacking Almighty God and I'm not going to stand for it. You may say the lame and the blind will ward me off, but you haven't seen anything yet. And what David does, instead of getting into a fit of rage, he begins to do reconnaissance. And what he finds is there's a water tunnel that they've dug that supplies the city with water. And when he redirects that water course, those idols become totally inanimate. They're unable to move. David goes in and he destroys the Jebusites. Why? He does exactly what he did 30 years earlier. When Goliath said, Who is this God of Israel? David showed him. And he chose the Jebusites as well. In fact, he does what every servant of the Lord does. He not only engages his enemies elevates his king. He begins to eliminate the idols in the lives of the people that stand in the way of the king's rightful place in the lives of each person. 
He engages his enemies. He elevates their eyes to the king of the world and he eliminates their idols. And then he does one more thing. He enlarges his rule. Look at verse 8, or sorry, verse 10. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, in English, it sounds a little bit uh, egotistical. You know, David became greater and greater. You know what the Hebrew literally says? He gained longer stride and a larger embrace. You know what that means? David became more and more like his king. Think of it. Before David gets there, the city of the Jebusites is a place to be avoided. No one ventured into that pit of superstition. It was too ominous, too foreboding. The Jebusites ruled that area for over 50 years. Nobody wanted anything to do with it until David gets all the way through the water supply. It's like he goes to the land of Oz. He rips the curtain open and says, there is only one God here. And His name is Yahweh. You see, David knows that the God of the universe can break any superstition. He can put an end to every bondage and every addiction. He can put an end to all terror. You know what else he can do? He can break down the walls of separation that occur between people. You've seen it and I've seen it. He takes people of different colors, different races, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different uh, political persuasions, and brings them all together into a city of peace. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that as David's stride encompasses the city, people from the north and the south, enemies and friends, poor and rich, gather together into one city, into one people, and it becomes a city of peace. You know, Jesus said it this way, they will know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. Love breaks things down. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem began to be a city of immigrants, poor, rich, different nationalities, different tongues. People who were helpless and hopeless and lost were brought together by the love of God flowing through the prince of Salem. It's exactly what God does today. Through the prince of peace. No wonder Jesus is called the son of David. He does exactly what David does, only better. Jesus engages his enemies like you and me. He not only engages us, he saves us. He gives us unconditional grace. He not only does that, he elevates our eyes so that we begin to see him in all of his beauty and splendor. He begins to change our heart's affection so our idols begin to disappear. And then he always does one more thing. He enlarges his territory in our lives. You see, if you're in a deep, dark pit, you don't need Confucius saying, you know, if you'd listen to me, you wouldn't be in there. 
there are a lot of Confucii in this world today. If you're in a deep, dark pit, you don't need Buddha coming and say, hey, listen, if you just get out a little bit, I'll show you the way in which to walk. What you and I need is the king of Salem to jump down into our pit and to pull us out. And that's what Jesus always does. And Jerusalem proves it. Think about that. Amen.